I was pretty adamant that it was SSG, not SSR. That is not an acronym we are allowed to use. If we are going to use SSG for server-side generation, something has gone terribly wrong in the world, because that acronym is already being used. Welcome back to FS Jam, and this week we have a special guest, a fellow Britannia and application maker, part of the Redwood Core team, Danny Chowdhury. Welcome to the podcast. So let's get to it. You say hello. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> hello. As Chris said, you are on the Core Redwood team. So we've gotten to know each other a little bit through working on that. You've got this really cool application you're building with Redwood called Tape, and you're working on some really cool stuff with pre-rendering, and I know you've done work. I think you've helped out with, like, auth and things like that, at least in terms of giving feedback and helping kind of work all that out. So, yeah, there's a lot of things I'd really like to get into, but before we get into any of that, let's first just kind of get who you are, what you do, if there's anything else you want to say about your company that I haven't, I haven't already mentioned, and then we'll kind of get into your background and all that stuff. Cool, yeah. Uh, so first, thank you both for having me. You should always say that on a podcast when you go on. So a bit about me, I'm, I'm here in London in the UK, and I've been doing JavaScript development across both mobile and web for quite a while now. Uh, I don't know, maybe nine, 10 years, I need to count, <laughs> double check. Right now I've been working on my own product, tape.sh, but before that I went into the more software roles, the SDM, software development manager roles in my previous two roles. And before that I did a bit of web and mobile development as well. Would SDM be kind of like a, a PM here? No. So SDM or SSDM, I think they are Amazon terms, to be honest. So this is technical management. So normally SDMs are you're in charge of one team, one software development team. SSDMs have multiple teams that they're managing. That's the sort of role that I have. I'm also consulting at the moment as well, and I have been for uh, the past few years, mostly in the React Native space. So my role varies quite a lot. Sometimes it's more technical as in hands-on writing code. Other times over time, as you spend some time working somewhere, you kind of move up. Eventually I've always ended up in these software management roles, but with a strong focus on the technical aspects, if that makes sense. If you love trains like Joe Biden, Danny worked at Eurostar. And if you didn't know what Eurostar is, it's the now controversial connection between Britain and France. But most people use it to just go to Disneyland Paris. <laughs> actually, Eurostar holds a special place for me, actually, because that's where I first used React. It kind of opened my eyes to what was possible with React. It's also where I first did server-side rendering with React. Before React, it was very, very difficult to achieve that sort of thing. Yeah, a special time for uh, my career, I think. But you already mentioned it, it's, it is controversial. In fact, when I worked at Eurostar, I was surrounded by all of these uh, cosmopolitan European and London types. And I count myself as one of them, by the way. And that's when Brexit happened. Wow, that was an experience. <laughs> wow, without going too technical, I would say if you've never read about the story how the Eurotunnel was made, it's 
a great example of engineering between France and Britain because what they actually did was dug a tunnel from both sides of the continents and then met with I think like millimeter precision in like 2005 so way before computers did everything before it could measure things exactly nice I didn't know that yeah worth a documentary I think there's tons of them on YouTube so I'm curious Danny how did you first get into programming did you have more of a formal CS background or it sounds like you started more in the the web area so I'm kind of curious how you found your way into that and like what your first programming languages were stuff like that this stuff is a little bit fuzzy for me because it feels like a long time ago now but I got into programming I would say properly into programming at university so my background is halfway electronic engineering and computer engineering. But as I went through the course, I realized I wasn't very good at the electronic and the electrical side. And I really started liking the programming side and the computing side. And that's how I kind of got into it. Uh, of course, I started learning C++ and, you know, the more hardcore languages, getting really into, you know, the standard data structures, big O, optimization, that sort of thing. But one of the things I particularly remember is my first ever coding test I had at university was to write a recursive function calculating factorials. And I remember getting a C in it. That was a hallmark of my um, kind of how I go into programming. I thought it wasn't going to be for me. I thought it was too difficult. But I had this amazing PhD student who's helping us out in the labs and kind of guiding us through it. He spent one afternoon, a couple of hours maybe, just kind of walking me through how statements work, how for loops work, and really getting into the basics of it. The next day, I found that I could code. It was literally that pivotal moment. I needed someone to get me through that initial hump. And after that, it all came naturally and you get more geeky about it and you more you feel more confident about your abilities. That's my background in computing. And how I got into the web space was, as you've heard, my, my computing education was very formal. It was very hardcore computing, hardcore languages. Just as I graduated 2012, it was, Angular 1 was getting big. And that's how I got into the JavaScript space. I found that it was so cool that you could do real programming, if you want, in JavaScript. Very interesting concepts such as MVC. All of that was new to me. It had dependency injection and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I can see how at the time that would, you would have seen that as more quote unquote real programming than the, the types of JavaScript things that were available before. Yeah, exactly. And of course, since then, my view of things has evolved a little bit. I'm a big fan of simplicity. So anything that you can just take one look at and you understand for me is of higher value. You gotten into Svelte yet? I haven't yet, no. <laughs> Based on just that statement alone, you would probably like Svelte. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that that it happens as you, as you mature, I guess, a little bit. But also as when you've been in teams and you've built huge projects where things are kind of at the brink of crumbling and you have to bring it back, that's when you start to really appreciate simplicity. That's why, like, that's my number one principle, you know, the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid, I think, but there's a nicer way of saying it. I don't know which one it is. I just say kiss. Keep it simple, silly. 
Yeah. We're in a camp, so I'm good at these kind of like, think of something nice off the top of my head type situations. And then how did you first hear about Redwood and what made you think it was like interesting and worth actually investing your time and eventually your, your company's technology in it? So let me give you a little bit of background on how I got, got it started with tape. Beginning of 2020, I think, yeah, I'd left my job at this fintech where I was managing multiple web and mobile teams and the exposure there was fantastic. It was building a white label mobile banking app and then also web tools and SDKs for our clients to interact with the APIs for the banking system. As time went on, I realized I kind of wanted to do something more creative. I had an amazing team. The exposure was fantastic, but I started realizing I wanted to build something of my own, try and own the process from the beginning to the end. So that's how I started with a good friend of mine to take a few months out, start building stuff we think is cool, see if we can make a product out of it. Our first product that we built was a travel app. That's just as the pandemic hit. Quickly, we realized, hey, we're going to lose motivation. There's no point in doing this. But in the process of doing that, we realized that as we're building the mobile app, we're sharing a lot of screenshots. We're sharing a lot of animations, just trying to communicate with each other remotely to get the idea across better. And that's where the idea of tape came from. So the idea is that whenever you're working with somebody, and it's not limited to mobile development anymore, but when you're collaborating, it's just easier to get the point across when you show someone what you mean, rather than, you know, have to write long emails or long Slack messages to tell them what you mean. At this point, we started looking for how do we build this? So we, we figured out the client side part of it, but we didn't know how we want to host it, how we're going to, you know, I've built with Next before, I've built with Express before um, on the server side. But we just kind of came across Redwood somehow. It seemed like a really interesting tool, but what sold me initially to try it was cells. One of my pet peeves is I really, really dislike writing loaders. I think it's so painful to do something so simple. I really dislike having those if statements to say, if fetch is still in progress, or if the data has come back and, and it's null, that sort of thing. I really dislike writing it because you had to write it so many times over and over again. Yeah, just real quick, if there's any people who are kind of hopping in as like newer listeners, a cell is just how Redwood does data fetching in a declarative way. So it's a way to have your different states that your data could be in either empty, loading, error, or success. So you don't have to write those conditionals to decide how to do error handling or any of that kind of stuff. So you basically saw cells and you're like, this is a really nice convention for something I've been doing myself forever. And these guys looks like they pretty much nailed it. Yeah, it wasn't that cells do something that I can't do, but it was trying to remove the barriers to, you want to make what you're building more fun. You want to focus on building your product rather than focusing on things that are very important, but not necessarily contributing to the development of your product, if that makes sense. I find examples would be, and Redwood does a lot of this really well, the Babel configurations, the Webpack configurations, and all of that. So it felt like a natural fit to just try it out. At this point, I hadn't decided to use it. So this was very, very early on. I think the first time I used Redwood was point 
five, maybe. So just before auth became official, auth, the, auth packages became official, I think. What I decided to do, because one of my fears about choosing a new framework is how much lock-in there is in a framework. So once you write your application or part of your application in it, and you decide you don't want to use a framework, how quickly can you get out of it? The plan was, let's spend a few days writing a custom auth for this framework, which doesn't support it yet. The idea was, if I can write the custom auth so quickly in a few days, that probably means the framework is simple enough and it's extendable enough that we were not going to hit lock-in because auth is one of the most complicated topics that you can do. And it's also one of the topics that generate the most lock-in into any framework. And once I managed to do the custom GitHub implementation, that was it. I was sold. I was like, look, there's all of these reasons you want to use it. It feels a little bit like the nice parts of Rails. It takes away the sort of boilerplate code that I don't really want to deal with. I want to build this product quickly and I want to enjoy the process of doing it. I was like, yeah, this is what we're doing. Redwood it is. So that's the first intro to Redwood. Yeah, that's cool. That What you said about auth is, is really interesting. And I like this idea of having a, some sort of litmus test of how extensible a framework can be or how coupled a framework is. For me, this litmus test was was doing the whole Fauna thing. And I've talked about this on the, the podcast before, figuring out how to take Prisma out and then rewrite your services with Fauna, getting a completely different database, but also ripping out your ORM entirely. To me, like that was a, a really strong litmus test that this is something that can be decomposed in, in really interesting ways. And auth is something that we've also talked about a lot with, with Brandon, and we're going to get DT on and do a real deep dive into auth. So that's cool. And what auth provider were you using when you did that? Or were you just kind of handling the JWT stuff yourself? It was all custom. So it was GitHub, but not GitHub in the way that's officially supported by Redwood. At the time, I thought I had good reasoning behind it. And largely it's because I didn't want to pay for an auth service. And when you say you use GitHub, you mean you used GitHub as a third-party login? Yes. So it was GitHub to authenticate you as a person. And then once you get the user back, everything else is handled using custom code. The JWT generation and that sort of thing is custom. And of course, there's that old blog post on uh, the Redwood community, if you're curious how it used to work in the 0.6 till 0.12 days. Of course, it's evolved a little bit now. So I think that was the point I decided, yeah, this is definitely something we're going to use. But there were a few other points where it really confirmed that this is the right way to go. First of all was uh, the interaction with Peter P and David Price, you know, the wonderful people. And at the time, I didn't really know them that well. You know, I'd never met them, but just the way you could interact with them. With David, it was more the higher level concepts. With Peter, you could just go straight into the depths of some topic such as auth, and you would get a very reasonable, simple answer back. I was like, wow, this is really nice to be able to have that conversation with people there. And then, of course, you start to speak with people like Chris and Toby as well. We debug some stuff together. It kind of draws you in. And then eventually when you have a chance to speak to Tom, and I remember the first meeting we had, I, there was a small, I guess, core community meetup, which it wasn't called that at the time. And David put me on the spot to present tape. 
no preparation, nothing. And, you know, when you first meet Tom, before you get to know him, it feels a little bit daunting, right? Because, you know, he's so successful. But also, I feel like he's had a huge influence in the way I think about software with things like Semver, of course, GitHub. But I feel like his, uh, you know how I mentioned KISS and keeping it always simple, make it easy to understand. I feel like Tom always embodies that idea. Readability and getting your head around a concept seems to be very high on his list. So it was daunting. And that's the demo. And it was wonderful to get that feedback from Tom and from the core community there. And you realize that, hey, maybe this is a decent product, but also that I'd like to be more part of this community because they seem to be receptive to my use of this very early and uh, young framework. And I can see that I can help drive the direction a little bit as a user of Redwood. I remember the first time I joined one of these meetups. I was like, oh my gosh, the guy has the Christopher Nolan Batmobile in his background. Like, this guy is legit. Of course, you know, he is just a person and he's really great at what he does. But we're all in this world where we put people on pedestals by what they've created previously. And, and that's very much how it goes in developer world is I was lead developer at X company that got sold. Great. Or founder. But a lot of people have like major dev careers and you never know because, you know, they go into a big company and they just work their way up. I felt with joining Redwood and getting to know everyone is that looks up deceiving just because it's got a big name behind it doesn't mean that it's going to succeed and it is all about the community and the technology yeah i agree i think the way the community has grown and you see the interaction as well not just i don't mean just the core community i mean you know users who are popping in to try something in uh, and you see the messages on discord you see someone who's trying something new and they're contributing back it's really wonderful to be part of building this together with people who you've never met. I think that's such an amazing thing that we're able to do this because as engineers, we like building things. But the bit that we forget is you get the best out of anything you're building when you work with other people and different perspectives and different backgrounds that kind of help you form your ideas better. The community, I think, is, is wonderful. It's a big, big part of Redwood. All right, let's get into tape. We've already said that tape is something that you can use for screen recording. So when I think of screen recording, I know that Loom is a popular choice. Swix even mentioned that on his recent episode. I know Adam Wyland, I think, just uses QuickTime just to record his screen. So there's ways you can do it yourself with just kind of standard programs on your computer. And then there's other kind of more hipper options as well. So how do you see tape in terms of where it fits into this whole landscape of screen capture tools? Let me answer your question in two parts. Let me first talk about the CLI and the mobile side, because that's where tape got started. And then I'll address the loom and that part of tape. On the CLI, what Tape is doing, by the way, the CLI is completely open source. If you wanted to go have a look how it works, it's not doing anything that you can't do yourself with other tools because underneath it's using mobile development tools such as ADB and XE Run. These are tools that are on your machine if you do mobile development. 
It's not that tape does something that you can't do in any other way. It's just that it does it in a much more simple way. And just real quick, when you say for mobile development, are we talking iOS, Android, both? Like, what does that exactly mean? Yeah, both. Whether you're doing Android on macOS, Linux, or Windows, ADB is always there. That's one of the base tools for Android dev. And for iOS, XE Run, which is, I guess, Xcode command line tools. I, I don't know exactly what it stands for. Yeah, Xcode kind of is how everything runs through. If you're doing any sort of like mobile iOS, I think you, you can't really do it without Xcode in some respect. Exactly. So the flow normally would be, if you didn't have tape on the mobile side, it would be, oh, let's record the screen with this very complicated ADB command or XE run command. Then you get a video file. Then you copy that video file to a folder you're working on. Then you drag and drop into Slack or I don't know, S3, you want to upload somewhere, and then you can send someone a link. It's not that you can't, you can't do it without tape. It's the idea that with tape, all you have to do is say, hey, I want a GIF of this screen. Tape, GIF. That's it. It will pick the first emulator. If you have multiple emulators, it lets you choose, and then it records whatever is happening on your screen. You press spacebar. It will then upload give you a link, and even copy the link into your clipboard. So you can imagine for the CLI, this is, I found it super useful just uh, sharing across Slack with clients to say, hey, I built this, what do you think? Or when I'm doing a PR into the repo to say, this is this new feature, this is what it looks like, or this is what the flow looks like, and you just do tape, gif, dash that format, md. And that gives you a markdown formatted link already in a clipboard. You just go on the pull request and you paste it. The idea with it is that it makes it much, much easier. The analogy I think of, and this applies to both versions of tape, when Slack first came in, or the breed of messaging, enterprise messaging apps came in, it didn't do anything email couldn't do. It didn't do anything Hangouts couldn't do. Can I get an emoji reaction to an email, though? <laughs> you, you can, you can. The point is that it's not doing something that you can't do. It's just reducing the barriers to communication. And I see tape in its both forms, whether it's the macOS app or the CLI, to do exactly the same thing. When you're building something and you're when you're trying to explain it to someone, you don't want to think about, oh, I'm going to record it with this tool, that tool, whatever. You just want two clicks, or even better, zero clicks, just a command shortcut, and you get a link back and you just paste it. So the idea is that you don't need to think about it as much anymore. And that's the core concept behind it. In the case of the macOS app, and so you're going to have to remind me the question. Tape and how it relates to other other tools as well. So and you were explaining kind of like how the CLI works and how that differentiates it. Cool. So in the case of the macOS app, the experience is similar, right? You can just use QuickTime to record your screen or use the amazing open source one called Cap to record whichever window you want. And there are various tools like Loom and CleanShot and all of these pretty good products that do it do what you might want to do. But I think the case is the same in all of these products is that they require a lot more active involvement. You need to click around a little bit more to get what you want. 
these products in various degrees are and can be far more powerful than tape. But the idea with tape macOS is I don't want it to be powerful. I want it to be very, very simple. I wanted to do one thing and one thing really well. So the idea is when, um, I don't know, if maybe if you work with spreadsheets and you want to explain how you're doing a certain calculation on one part of the spreadsheet, you just trigger it with two clicks or one shortcut. Record what you want to show with your webcam, if you want, and you get a link back and you paste it to your colleague. People who are into Vim would probably really like it then. People don't want to ever leave their keyboard. I used to have this joke with, uh, so at my last job, I had a junior dev. Uh, she was quite young, but we used to have a joke because she was getting into all of this tooling and I was showing her all of this cool stuff that you could use. And we used to have a joke that, you know, clicking around is for noobs. <laughs> so as much as you can, if you, you if you use keyboards and you use your shortcuts, I always love the experience better. When the shortcuts are done tastefully. So th that's the idea, to make the experience smoother and simpler and for it to never get in your way. So clip, send, that's the idea. Let's talk about some of the technologies Tape is built with because you've used slightly different projects to what most Redwood apps have used in terms of UI. Let's start with app design then. When you're choosing a UI library, there's various factors into play. Maybe you want design, the aesthetics, of course, they are a huge part of it. But for me, the biggest thing was, look, I don't have a huge team building this. It's just me and at, in the beginning, uh, my partner as well. And we needed something that could get the job done quickly. We needed something with a large amount of the functionality we're thinking of baked in to the library. Things like copy, copying text with Ant Design's React library, it's like a prop, that's it. It's decisions like that where you say, if you don't have to build it, don't build it, is, is the idea behind it. So I, while I stand by that decision, what didn't work out so well with Ant Design was, first of all, the bundle sizes did not because the bundle sizes are huge, huge with Ant Design. I'm sure there's a way you can do a lot of optimization, but I just couldn't find any sort of good documentation that would point me in the right direction. Eventually, I started using Tailwind as well. You get there, but you you learn from your mistakes along the way. So you're using both Ant Design and Tailwind at the same time? Why is that necessary? It's literally a case of I don't have enough time to change everything. So it's incrementally doing things. I don't think, uh, I realize that the bundle sizes are still quite large, but I don't think the effect is that detrimental. I don't think it's gotten to a point where you have to take it out immediately. So can you purge Ant Design or is that why you're moving to Tailwind because you can purge CSS that way? There's multiple reasons uh, as well uh, why I started using Tailwind. First of all, I know my background is a lot in front end, but funnily, if it's not Tailwind, I'm not very good with UI. I really, really struggle with placing things on the DOM. You know, that... <laughs> it's almost like it's not easy to do or something. <laughs> it, it doesn't come naturally to me. I, I prefer the more, the data side of, you know, building front end applications. But I think Tailwind kind of changed 
changed it a lot for me. I'm totally okay with React Native styling. I'm totally okay with how you do Flexbox styling. I've even done native development, both on Android and Swift, uh, Swift or iOS's one, I found a little bit more difficult at the time because Swift UI wasn't there. But I find that some of the newer ways of doing things uh, come more naturally to me as I guess some more, I don't know how you describe it, but I'm closer to the data side than the design side, if that makes sense. Actually, so I describe this as there's the the front of the front end and the back of the front end. So the front of the front end is like the HTML, CSS stuff. And then the back of the front end is things like, you know, Redux and state management and how you're actually doing your data fetching and, and all that kind of stuff. And that's all in this larger bundle of what is considered now front end. So yeah, no, I totally get what you mean there. Exactly. And Tailwind kind of changed it all for me. I wouldn't say I'm a whiz, not like Robert from the core team as well. I love his UI library. By the way, if you haven't checked it out, I use that for tape as well, the new homepage. Statically, wonderful piece of work. It like sped me up so much because one of the things you realize as a solo founder, so what, what happened in between the when I first started tape and a few months later was my uh, my friend and co-founder, he had to go, he had some other priorities to go look after uh, professionally. So we decided, look, I can keep doing this. It doesn't affect, you know, you do what you have to. It, it became just me building tape at that point. You realize that you have an infinite list of things to always do, because not only am I doing all of the designs, all of the marketing, so social media, the code for the front end, the code for the back end, debugging issues that are coming back. It's just a huge, huge list of things that you that's never ending. I'm sure you know, Chris. So I will take all the help that I can get. And uh, that's why it felt like if I use it's you can see there's a parallel between why I chose Ant in the first place and why I decided to move to Tailwind. One, the syntax is wonderful and I find it intuitive, but also the pre-built products that are there that don't lock me in because it's just HTML or JSX that I can customize myself. Yeah, it, it made sense to rebuild, rebuild the front page in this new UI framework. My thoughts on these are very similar as the main founder of the code, as the technical founder. I almost feel like Professor X sometimes, like there's a bug and 95% of the time I can go, it's in this file, probably that blog. You have to map the whole application, every side in your brain. We recently took on our first employee and it's just our first few days were like a scatter map of just like trying to explain how everything works in your brain. And something that I saw on Twitter today that I thought resonated with me really well, and this is paraphrasing because obviously sometimes I can't remember these things. The, the tweet was, it's better to go fast and break than to go slow and write. You become a generalist and you really need to find out very fast what you're really good at and what you're really bad at. And whatever you're really bad at, you just need to hold on so you can hire someone else to do that. 
I agree, because one of the things as a solo founder or as the sole technical person in your project building this larger product that you, whatever it may be, is you have to manage your own motivation. Because if you keep coming across things that you don't enjoy and you find it is a chore to do, eventually it kind of drains away your drive, drains away your motivation. I learned a lot about my personal motivation through this process to see look, um, I know what I enjoy. I know what will give me energy. So even if I'm having an off day today, hey, let's leave that UI thing I'm really struggling with because it doesn't work at, you know, the middle screen resolution. Let's leave it for now. Let me do some Redwood. Let me contribute a little fix to Redwood, get my spirits up again, enjoy the process. And tomorrow I'm going to fix this annoying little UI bug that I just cannot fix today. One of the things we really want to talk about is pre-rendering. We've both implemented React Snap, a all-in-one library to do it, but you've now gone a step further and are working on the official way for Redwood to do pre-rendering. What's the proper term? Is it SSG, SSR, or is it just pre-rendering? Because I think it's SSG. And what do those letters mean when you say SSG? SSG is server-side generation. SSR is server-side rendering. And pre-render is a subset of SSG. To me, SSG is done in the past. SSR is done now? I don't know. That's so confusing. What I would like to know is when I just within the last week or two, I heard that pre-rendering is just static generation. So kind of what, what Chris is, is trying to say over here. So is pre-rendering the same as static generation or is there a difference there? There is a difference, first of all. But I don't want to get into terminology battles, essentially, because it's you see it one way or, or the other, but... Well, we need to at least define how we're using it, so when we say these words, people understand what our words mean, because that's what words are for. Exactly. I'm going to describe my understanding of it. SSR, before the amazing stuff that Next.js did with SSG and uh, SWR, and there's all of these terms that Next.js introduced, but... Originally, when there was really one way to do it with React, right? You run it through an express server, and then you get some HTML back. This was my first experience with SSR, or server-side rendering, with React. And what that refers to doesn't necessarily mean whether it happens at runtime or build time. What that means is you use the Node.js environment to render React code. And that's what SSR originally meant. So if you look at old documentation and that sort of thing, that's that's what they'll refer to. And you will see, if you look at outdated libraries, you'll see SSR now supported. And what that means is I'm doing an extra check for window before I try to do something with the library. As Next introduced all of these new terms and SSR became an overloaded term. SSR now means I'm going to render it at runtime. SSG now means I'm going to run server rendering at build time, but it's actually doing the same thing. It's just where or when it's doing it. And of course, there are some differences. When you say static, I feel like there's more confusion that can 
get uh, generated here. So when you say static generation, I think of tools like Gatsby or Jekyll or, I don't know, Hugo. And so these are tools, whatever you write it in, it's not even important. At the end of it, it generates static HTML files. And once you deploy it, that's it. Like there's there's nothing dynamic about it, right? It's static generation for that reason. That's how I view static. And the way I view pre-rendering in Redwood, the official term still to be decided, by the way, but the way I view it is much closer to the original SSR, which is to say, we're going to take a component and we are going to render it in a Node.js environment. Currently with Redwood, we're going to try and do this at build time. So at build time, it renders your landing page so that you get all the benefits of SEO for whatever reason. Or maybe you want to create the skeleton of your page before uh, your full application loads up. But the difference from static here is that once the JavaScript loads up, it will hydrate your page. So it starts with a static HTML file, and then as soon as your React application or your Redwood application has loaded, it will become dynamic. Okay, that makes a ton of sense. So basically, the static generation part doesn't involve hydration, how you're defining these terms. When you're talking about some static generation, once you generate the static, it is static forever. Whereas what we're talking about here is we're talking about building as much as we can, and then also being able to hydrate it at a certain point. Yeah. So to give what it actually does without SSR or pre-rendering, as we will call it, your HTML file is basically one div that literally just says hashtag Redwood or React. Then when SSR runs, it generates the DOM tree and then injects it into that HTML file with the status of hydrated. I think, what's the original status? I think it's hydrated. No, it's, yeah, it's one of the, I can't remember. But it injects, it injects the HTML into the React tag, then save the file. Then when the user loads that page, it instantly shows the HTML structure and the CSS before JavaScript has initialized and the client gets rehydrated. To me, this is going to solve one of the biggest problems with Redwood, the gray screen of death. Redwood is a full application and that requires loading of JavaScript and APIs. And before all of that is done, you want to show something to your user because they will then perceive the website to be faster, even if it takes the same amount of time. If it first loads a skeleton, that then loads and then the client rehydrates, your customers then understand more what it's doing instead of what is going on, if that makes sense. That's exactly right. Beyond the SEO benefits, um, if there are any, um, I'm not an expert on this topic, but um, beyond the SEO benefits, there may be, you see the experience benefit as well, because you can start to do some fun stuff like defer the loading of the JavaScript file altogether, maybe even defer loading of CSS files if you're brave. That's something I need, uh, I'm in the process of looking at at the moment. The idea behind it is you make it feel as fast as possible while 
also making sure bots can parse it. And this sort of idea comes from, I think it was Apple's human interface guidelines many, many years ago. So when, when they first launched that and, you know, developers start first started building it, there was a section there that said, the original iPhone wasn't very fast, right? So when you load the app, it take it took a while for it to load up. So what it would do is have a PNG or or something, I don't know specifically, but have a PNG that is the skeleton of the app so that when you as a user touch that icon, it immediately shows you that skeleton and it feels so much faster as soon as you do that. I find it so interesting how we're, not necessarily managing the performance of our applications here as we're managing the psychology of our users. Because I always hear this term, perceived performance in these conversations that we're kind of saying that we're not really making it as fast as it needs to be. We're making it as fast as our users want it to be because they're super impatient. I wouldn't say it's it's about impatience. It's literally how we as users would perceive it, right? I remember from years ago, so I was doing some smart TV development, so a video streaming development for, well, smart TVs, similar to Netflix before Netflix was huge. Incidentally, by the way, I had a chance to work with the PS4 before it came out. It was all locked down. I had a development unit that I was working on for this product. Absolutely amazing. But one of the things that was a challenge there was that you say, look, these devices, they vary quite a lot, not the PlayStations, but the smart TVs. They're very limited in their performance. What you need to do is hide away all of the details that people don't see. Leave as much memory as you can in your application. As long as you can do something under 140 milliseconds, any interaction under 140 milliseconds, then the user will never know the difference. And there was this amazing article from Netflix that describes this in detail. That was the takeaway for me, that 140 milliseconds. I always use it as a principle. You can optimize all of these things, but is it worth doing the optimization? One of the things that I think is really interesting when it comes to these optimizations I can't go into it too in-depth because I only know so much, but when you do server-side generation, also generating the default cache of the store management. And I think you can do this with some Next.js libraries like pool state, where you say when you're going to pull the SSG, also set up a default cache. And I think that's how ISSG works. I'm pretty sure it is. You flip from one SSG to another SSG halfway through that sentence. I hope you just realized that. Yeah. Next.js is very crazy because they release this step above SSG is that when your user goes to the page, it also refreshes it in the background to have the latest SSG. So it's not only at build time, it's also at user run time. Let me dig into this a little bit because I've used Next as well. Part of Tape, the share page on Tape is built with Next. In the Next.js context, SSG static stuff actually also hydrates, by the way. So that's something you should let me first explain that bit. ISSG means whenever you go onto a page in the background, it will run that render process again so that when Anthony 
visits that page, even though I got a stale page and my client refreshed the to the latest date, next time when Atsune visits, he's going to see the latest one because it's rendered and cached it. This is also known as, I believe, SWR, stale while we validate. Like I said, there's so many terms describing what it is. An easy way to think about it is to always think whether it's happening at build time or is it happening at runtime. And that way it just kind of clarifies it, I think. What is a framework doing as in in the background? Because obviously Next has their own set of black magic of this ISSSG. Is that a Lambda function that reruns it and then stores locally? Is that something Redwood could achieve in the future? That is what Next is doing, but I think Next has this... Remember, Next is is very mature compared to Redwood. It's had many, many years of improvement. You know, I'm not the sort of person that has to select one framework. I'm a huge fan of Redwood, but when I need something from Next, I will happily use Next because it is a fantastic framework as well. The advantage Next has here is that they have tightly coupled their infrastructure because it's built by Vercel with the framework and clearly they're investing a lot into the future of Next as well being tied with Vercel. That's where they are able to do the ISSG stuff. Okay because this is something that came up with Brandon is this is exactly what my impression was is that is the integration between Next and Vercel is what allows some of these things but Brandon said that Next can run with all of its features on any other platform. And and I didn't think that was true when he said that. I don't think you will get ISSG the same way. On Netlify, for example. Yeah, you definitely won't get it on Netlify. That I'm confident you're not going to get on Netlify. That's what I thought. I was like, are they adding some like hidden Lambda functions to my Netlify or my Chrism server? I find that part of Next very opaque because I find it very difficult to understand where they're doing this stuff. I guess this is the advantage of combining your infrastructure with a framework because you're able to do these amazing things. Going back to whether Redwood will be doing this in the future, the answer is a firm maybe because the way I am building pre-render at the moment, the choices I've made and not just me because the choices I will discuss it with the core team I will always try and balance out different views to get there but the general idea is let's focus on what we can do right now with the infrastructure that is there and that infrastructure being which infrastructure is like whose infrastructure are we using here normal infrastructure that is not specific to any provider to me that doesn't exist there's no such thing as normal infrastructure that doesn't exist to one provider I think Netlify's approach is pretty normal. If you run it in a Docker container, that's pretty normal. So you're saying Docker? Uh, No, I'm just saying that you don't want the framework at this point in time to have prior knowledge of what special capabilities there might be at the infrastructure layer. Because sure, Netlify uh, does functions, right? Uh, So there's Vercel, so there's so many other people. But what they're doing there is... They're providing an easy way of using it. But those are specific functions. Those functions won't run on Cloudflare. They would with Cloudflare workers, right? 
I don't think so. I think that Lambda, so that's the thing, this is the problem, is that when you're writing for functions on Netlify or Cell, you're writing for Lambda functions, but Lambda functions and Cloudflare functions, as far as I know, don't necessarily cross over or interop. So this is why I say, I don't think there is an agnostic infrastructure that exists. Without looking into Cloudflare workers too much, in my head, they're pretty much the same thing. They're different semantics of how it works. Cloudflare workers are generally also used for more closer to Netlify's edge handlers. Right, yeah. But but that's probably more because Cloudflare is at the front of your stack. It's not so much. I think they haven't optimized their workflow to say, hey, you know what? You don't need all of this other infrastructure or all of these services you're paying for just deploy everything on cloudflare i think they're getting there yeah it's just like that's on my mind a lot and i think about a lot so that's why i kind of wanted to, to dig into that you should dig into this because i haven't used cloudflare workers so you know this is how i see it i i don't know how how different in practice they are in general i think building towards Anything that's going to be AWS or a layer on AWS is always going to be the right choice. I'm thinking of kind of like farther out into the future, you want to be able to interop with Cloudflare and Fastly's cloud, but this is kind of like more of a, a bigger term thing. I think today the smart move is always, always, always going to be bet on AWS. I just think that their clouds are moving in interesting directions to keep an eye on. Yeah, yeah. Why shouldn't I just pre-render every page? You could. Exactly. <laughs> if you really want to, you could do it. Why shouldn't you do it? It's not that you shouldn't do it. It's the same idea. Is there any benefit in doing it? I think that's probably the better question to ask. For example, let me give you an example of a page that may not have a lot of value pre-rendering. Say you have a dashboard page where it loads all of your personal data. This is the all of the tasks specific to Chris. It requires login. It requires knowledge of who you are as a user, maybe your roles, various things that are contextual in your browser. If you've pre-rendered this entire page, there's not a lot of benefit because that data will change. You don't know what data is going to be in its place. But instead, if you're smart about it and you say, I'm only going to render the skeleton of this page, as in the frame of this page and wherever there are cells or dynamic data, I'm going to put in loaders. So when you load up the HTML, you see that frame and it feels like, oh, it's already there. It's just loading. That to me is a smarter strategy. The reason why I asked that was because when you would pick something like Gatsby, it's automatic, every page pre-rendered. But with Redwood on your PR, it's opt-in. So why? So there is a, a second reason. So uh, first of all, I think Gatsby and Redwood, in my opinion only, they serve different purposes. At least to me, I, I wouldn't choose Gatsby for building something like tape. And likewise, I wouldn't necessarily choose Redwood to build a, I don't know, a new site. That's my personal feelings around this, because I feel like the two different frameworks are optimized for doing that and they're very very good at it so you choose the right tool for the job the reason pre-rendering is opt-in with redwood is first of all it's still an alpha feature you know it's still in that draft pr 
We don't know how it's going to go. It might introduce more complexity. But as a user of Next.js, something, if you remember, I don't know if you've come across this. One of the annoying things in Next.js is you have to have to use universal modules. For example, if you have a hook that you're detecting the breakpoint or the intersection observer on your page, and that library hasn't been written to be server-side compatible, it breaks. Next handily provides a way around this, but I feel like that's not an optimal experience, is it? It feels like I'm going to have to jump through all of these hoops for maybe something I don't even want. That's the reasoning. I think there may be some good reasons why the Next.js guys have enabled it, probably because they see their target is slightly different to Redwood as well. At least the way I'm seeing Redwood at the moment is that it's beautifully simple. It does so many things for you that you don't want to deal with without doing things that you want to handle yourself. So the reason it's opt-in is because, for example, you're most likely going to pre-render your landing page. You're going to pre-render your about page. But let's say I've written a new page where I've added all of these libraries that are browser only. And as soon as I try to pre-render it, it breaks. Now, as a user, it's just nicer to say, hey, I'm just going to, yeah, I'm not going to pre-render this until I find a way around it. So I think that opt-in approach has certain advantages that way. Will cells be pre-rendered? For example, I have a cell that's just pulling my terms conditions, right? Just some standard HTML, doesn't need auth. Would that cell get pre-rendered or is it everything that needs to load data will have to be hydrated? So in the current version, it's not going to pre-render anything inside cells. So I can think of a good use case. Maybe pricing is a good use case where you might use a cell to render on your landing page, right? To show you different, different plans that you have available, for example. This is something that, uh, yeah, we should probably tackle, but I'm trying to keep this out of the scope for this initial version of pre-render. There's an interesting, this isn't something like officially endorsed or anything. One of the things that it's been percolating in my head is that instead of going through the hoops of trying to pre-render this in the pricing stuff that comes from your database, would we be better off aiming to use React server components for this sort of thing? Because it's probably better suited for this. It's, it seems like the right tool for the job. So just an idea. It's, it's something that's been uh, you know running around in my head. But how we're going to eventually end up doing it, we'll see once we get there. Well, thank you for your time. We really appreciate having you on this podcast. One of the things me and Danny agreed upon is that Danny is looking for more users of tape. And we've agreed upon a discount code for listeners of the FS Jam podcast. I can't remember how much we agreed. (laughs) 20%. 20%. And the code was FS Jam, all lowercase. I believe it was. All uppercase. <laughs> All uppercase. Danny is looking for more users of tape because it's built with Redwood and we all love the community. Danny is giving a discount to the FS Jam podcast. That's 
and the code is FSJAM in all capitals. Yep. Yeah, that is. Cool. Thanks a lot, Danny. Thanks for being here. Thanks for all the work you've done on the, the Redwood team, not only helping out with building the framework, but also always being just like a really positive, laid back presence in the community. I always enjoy how when you're like telling kind of technical topics, it always sounds like you're just like telling a story about when you're hanging out with your friends. So I really appreciate the kind of like presence you bring, you bring to the community. So thank you for that. Cool. Thank you both for having me in. Uh, very kind words, Anthony. Appreciate it. Yeah, keep up the great work on the podcast as well. Look forward to when this comes out and your future episodes. Thank you for going over also like super over on time also because that was a lot of really good topics we wanted to to get to so um this is gonna be a long episode but like it's really really valuable stuff like all this stuff i get asked about costly and i have no fucking clue what to say because i don't understand any of it <laughs>